The first scripture reading this morning is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. And you can find that on page 1173 of the Church Bibles. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to put off hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Please take your seats. Let's just bow our heads for a prayer. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would come by your spirit, that you would help me to speak, that you would give us all ears to hear your voice. In Jesus' name, amen. We human beings, we know that there's something wrong with us. And this takes on two different forms, really. Of course, we know that there's something wrong with other people besides us because we see war and violence and famine and torture and rape and pornography and corporate greed and environmental destruction and the list goes on and on and on and on. We have no doubt that there is something wrong with other people. But we also have a strong sense that there's something wrong with us. The market in self-improvement products is massive. $10 billion a year in the US alone. And it's a huge market here in the UK as well, covering everything from happiness to weight loss to success, money, spirituality, and a thousand other things. Here's one that I picked up a while ago. It says, transform your life. 
52 brilliant ideas for becoming the person you want to be. That's quite a lot of ideas, isn't it? 52. Funnily enough, I, picked it, I, I, I bought it um, on the advice of someone I met in prison. Not, not that I was in prison, but I was visiting someone in prison. And uh, the person, I, the person I, 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 in the waiting room, I met the person who wrote that book. And, and of course, out of politeness, I bought it subsequently, you know, after, after a chat. But anyway, uh, the truth is, I read two pages of it and stuck it on the back of a shelf and never got it out again. But in short, the world tells us in a million different ways that we need to be better people. Now, of course, some of the advice that we get from self-help books and, and stuff like that is not all bad. You know, a good diet and regular exercise is good for all of us. But the point I want to put to you this morning is that what the world misses out on and what even many Christians miss out on is actually not realising just how much we have got going for us. And in this extraordinary passage from what is known as Paul's letter to the Ephesians, the Apostle Paul opens the lid on this treasure trove of blessings which we inherit the moment we put our faith in Jesus. And I think if we could just take these 12, 14 verses and realise their potential in our lives... We wouldn't need another self-help book ever again. I have a cousin called David James, who was the youngest of three brothers who, as quite a young man, inherited Hatton Castle in Scotland, along with a massive estate, many farms, salmon fishing, grouse shooting, moors. And, and he moved from the relatively ordinary existence to having the responsibility of owning and running a big chunk of Aberdeenshire. Quite obviously, it drastically changed his life. In this passage from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, Paul describes how the lives of Christians have been transformed by the inheritance which they have received through the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And this inheritance is far more awesome and far more life-changing in scope than inheriting an estate in Scotland. But first, a little bit about the context into which Paul is writing. This letter was probably not written exclusively to the church in Ephesus. As the footnote in the church Bible says uh, concerning verse 1, the earliest copies we have of this letter do not have the words in Ephesus in that sentence. And the general consensus of biblical scholarship is that Paul wrote this letter as a circular to be passed around a number of different churches in the area of Asia Minor, of which Ephesus was the capital city. These are some of the other churches mentioned also in the book of Revelation, um, which were close to uh, Ephesus, which this letter probably went to as well. And the culture of that day was not totally unlike ours. People of that culture embraced a whole variety of self-improvement activities, often involving the worship of other gods. Pray to this god and your health will be good. Pray to that god and your business will flourish. And in particular, there was a huge temple to the goddess Diana, who was understood to control much to do with nature, including childbirth and fertility. So if you wanted to get along in life, in that culture, instead of buying self-help books, 
or going to Weight Watchers or whatever it was, you sacrificed to these gods in the hope that things would turn out well. Paul's letter is written into that culture, which could so easily be our culture, in order to remind the Ephesians just how much God loves them and how much he has already blessed them with. The great preacher and Bible scholar David Lloyd-Jones said that Paul's letter to the Ephesians is the most sublime and majestic expression of the gospel in the whole of Scripture. And I agree with him, I think. And uh, and that's one of the reasons we're going to spend several weeks looking at this letter in more detail. For your information, Calvin, when he preached on the letter to the Ephesians, preached on it over 48 weeks. We're going to do it a little bit quicker than that. As Paul begins the letter, he quickly turns it into a beautiful prayer of worship. Verse 3. Praise be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Here, he gives us God the Father, Jesus Christ the Son, and every blessing of the Holy Spirit. John Stott, the biblical scholar, says that's what spiritual blessings means, blessings given by the Holy Spirit. And Paul finishes that off in Christ. In other words, all of these spiritual blessings come to us because and only because we are in Christ. The moment we decide to put our faith in Jesus, then we receive these spiritual blessings. That's good news for Christians. And it's good news for people who are thinking about whether Christianity has anything to offer them. And then Paul goes on to explain what these spiritual blessings are. And as he does so, he looks at the past, the present, and the future. So first of all, the past. Verse 4 tells us that God chose us before the creation of the world. That is one of the most mind-blowing aspects of our faith. We are chosen. And he says it again in verse 5. He predestined us. And again in verse 11. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to his plan. But how does this work? Surely, becoming a Christian is a choice that I make. Surely we cannot have been chosen before the creation of the world... If that's the case, then why bother to share the good news? If it's all been decided and predestined, then, well, we've all been stitched up, haven't we? Well, I think in our culture, we find it very hard to understand how the free will that we clearly have can easily sit alongside the concept of being chosen by God. But I think in Paul's culture, people didn't find it so strange. I've come to understand it a bit better by using an analogy from my own work-life experience. So, when I was a manager in business, I used to think, obviously, a lot of the time about my employees, and I used to spot some of them, I used to think, oh, they'd make a good manager in the future. And in a sense, I would choose them. And I'd spot them and I'd choose them. In other words, I'd make a point of particularly encouraging those people or that person offering them training opportunities, giving them a chance to have some extra responsibilities to see how they ran with it. 
And what happened was, some of them would flourish and go on to, to be managers themselves. But others would kind of reject it and push it away. And they wouldn't. And that's how I, I understand the idea that God chooses us, and yet we have the free will to embrace him or reject him. If you're not sure yet that you have fully put your faith in Jesus and you are wondering, am I chosen? My encouragement to you would be this. The very fact that you're wondering about it probably means that you're chosen and God's waiting for you to respond. Those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ will know that sense of chosenness. And it's not an arrogance or pride at being chosen by God. Far from it. It's much more like a humbling realisation that God actually loves me. Flawed, imperfect me with all my foibles and all my doubts. And God loves me. He's chosen me. It's amazing. And there's a qualification There are two words in verse 4 which qualify this chosenness. And they are in him. We're only chosen by God because we are in him. In other words, in Christ. So that we could not have been chosen by God if Jesus had not died on the cross for us. We can only be holy and blameless in his sight end of verse 4, because our sin, our wrongdoing, all the things that separate us from God have been removed by the sacrifice that Jesus made for us on the cross. Isn't that beautiful? That's the past, being chosen from before the world began. But now Paul moves on to the present. In verse 5, he says, in love we have adoption to sonship. In other words, God loves us so much that he's not just chosen us for for some duty or purpose to run around for him, but he's embraced us into his family as his children, as sons and daughters alongside Jesus. Romans 8 tells us that too. It says that we are co-heirs with Christ. What he inherits, we inherit. And you know, And I've mentioned this many times before, but at the moment that God first broke into my heart, in a little church out in the bush in South Africa, the overwhelming feeling I had as he filled me with his spirit, as he poured his love into my heart, was that I was being welcomed back into the family where I was always meant to be. And I knew for certain that day that God was my father and I was his son, that he loved me. Why does God do this? Because he loves to. It's why he made us. As verse 5 says, it's according to his pleasure and goodwill. How do we deserve this incredible privilege? We don't. Verse 6 says it's all because of his grace, which he has freely given us. Isn't this amazing news? We don't have to be good enough. We don't have to perform or jump through hoops. It's all grace. On the leadership training last Saturday, one of the images I used to help explain this is the cycle of grace. 
Um, and uh, here's how it works. <clears throat> this is the way, first of all, that the world tells us that we derive our significance. And the, when we think about who we are, and the world says... You've got to achieve. First of all, you've got to achieve. Pass that exam, meet your sales target, get that boyfriend, whatever it is, you've got to achieve. And then if you're achieved, if you've achieved, then you'll be accepted. You'll be okay if you've achieved. And then once you've accepted, then you'll receive the appropriate reward, the sustenance, and you'll be encouraged to carry on achieving. And through those three things we gain our significance. This is what the world says. Achieve, and ultimately, that's where you get your significance from. God turns this on its head. Jesus turns this absolutely on its head. Because God says, no, that's not true. In the true cycle of grace, you are already accepted. Because God says, I've chosen you. You didn't have to do anything. I love you. I've chosen you. He says, abide in me. God has adopted us into his family. He says, come and abide in me. And so we have incredible significance because I am a child of God. I'm a son of God. You're a daughter of God. We're children of God. So we have all the significance we could ever need by the very fact that he's adopted us into his family. And knowing that, we can achieve God's will, the plan that he has for us. And so Christianity turns the world's view on its head and says it begins with acceptance. God simply loves us. This is the good news of the gospel, that God loves us and accepts us and gives us everything that we need in the present. But there's even more to come because not only has God chosen us in the past and adopted us in the present, but God promises that our future is guaranteed. And I don't use that word lightly. Paul the Apostle says in verse 13, When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. The Tyndale commentary says that in the culture that this letter was written into, it's likely that the various religious cults of the day, like the Diana cult and so on, would tattoo their mark onto the the body of people to show that they've been sealed into that cult. And of course, many people do that today. People who worship football teams often have their team tattooed on their bodies. People in Hell's Angels gangs have a tattoo to show their allegiance. Some people have a cross tattooed on their bodies as a sign that they're Christians, and so do some who are not Christians. But what Paul is saying here is that God loves us so much that he's already marked those who believe in Jesus with a seal, not an external one, but an internal one, which is the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. And that when we have the Holy Spirit, we know that our inheritance as children of God is guaranteed, that we're redeemed for eternal life. As Paul says in verse 10, when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. It's amazing. That's the guarantee. And at the center of all of it is Jesus, without whom we would have 
None of this. It's in him that we are chosen. It's through him that we are adopted. It's through his blood shed on the cross that we're redeemed and forgiven. It's in him that God has made known to us the mystery of his will. It's through him that God is bringing unity to all things in heaven and on earth. What an amazing prayer. Surely, only someone whose life was so transformed by the love of Jesus could declare these things. Surely only somebody filled with the Spirit of God could sit in a prison cell, which is where Paul wrote this letter from, manacled to a Roman soldier, and pen some of the greatest words ever written down. It's interesting that although the self-help books sell in their millions and probably always will, as Lindsay Myers, writing in a journal last year, says about self-help books, they quote, outsold almost every other book in the known universe except the Bible. (laughs) Of course, the Bible isn't a self-help book. It's a God-transforms book. Because as Paul the Apostle knew, we cannot save ourselves. Only God can do that. And today I stand before you, a very flawed, imperfect human being, And yet my heart's bursting with the incredible blessings which God has lavished on us and which he freely offers to all those who put their trust in Jesus. Have you made that choice? Would you like to make that choice? Would you like to be blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ? Well, I'm going to make a suggestion. And I'm going to ask that Before we come up to communion, that the prayer ministry team come up first um, to receive communion so they could be then available at the back of the church by the cross above the table at the back so that right after you've taken communion, if you would like to go and have someone pray with you to receive every spiritual blessing in Christ, I know that they would love to pray with you to do that. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for these amazing words of Paul the Apostle. Thank you that you have given all who believe every spiritual blessing in Christ. Thank you that you've taken care of the past, that we are chosen. That you've adopted us as your children in the present. And that our future is guaranteed by the gift of the Holy Spirit. Help us to realise these wonderful truths afresh and allow you to change our lives because of them. In Jesus' name, Amen.